welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you have come along. And one of the things that has happened as a result of the various pieces that we've put out lately is that people are very interested in what is happening with the emergence of the Global Methodist Church. And we have another conversation today that I think will be incredibly helpful to you with two leaders within that movement who have a new book that's come out. But before we get there, I want to make sure you know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And particularly as we're thinking about the context of this conversation, there are faithful churches all around the country. And we at Wesley Biblical Seminary are doing all that we can to ensure there are bachelor's, master's, doctoral students who are making their way through a process where they are being trained in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that they will be trusted leaders to go to these faithful churches that are serving um, and they'll be ready to serve in those churches. So we're excited to make sure you know about Wesley Biblical Seminary, a seminary that is regularly training people in the evangelical Wesleyan tradition. You can check us out at wbs.edu. Secondly, we're brought to you by WPO Development, and Keith Waters is CEO of that group, and they've done more than 250 capital campaigns, feasibility studies, and strategic plans uh, for nonprofits and churches all around the country. They help people develop a plan and know how to actualize that plan. So I recommend them to you. I've used them for two campaigns myself. So you can find out more about them at WPO Development. And finally, the last thing we want to make sure you know about is that there is a new study that's come out from More to the Story Ministries of the Little Book of Jude, these 25 verses where we have six videos for small groups. And what's been interesting is that this book really, I think, is for this moment in the life of the church as we are called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And there are several churches within the United Methodist tradition that are using this as they are going through a disaffiliation process. There are others, uh, other churches, Salvation Army churches, divisions that are using this. So you can find out more about this study called Contender at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's Andy Miller, I, I, I. Okay, now I'm excited to bring in my guest. And I have with me today, Bishop Emeritus, Mike Lowry, and Dr. Jeff Greenway, who is the senior pastor at Reynoldsburg United Methodist Church and is prominently located in my office because his signature is on my seminary degree. Uh, friends, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you both here. It's a delight to be with you. Yeah, it's great to see you again, Andy. Glad to be here. Well, it's re it's really a treat for me to be with both of you, and particularly Jeff. You know, like uh, there was this kind of senior figure in my life as I going through the the, the seminary president. Uh, when you graduate, is a significant figure, and I I am I still have a few things, Jeff, that you would send out these nuggets to keep in mind as we entered pastoral ministry that I've kept close in my desk. Th these were the days where they have come out email and I printed them just to keep them close by. So it's really an honor to be with you again. Thanks, Andy. That means a lot to me. So I, you guys have a new book coming out and we're going to get to that. But if, if you all could just highlight your roles in the emerging Methodism, which I know could take two hours in itself, but if you could give us a short version of that, that would help us kind of frame where we are, and then in a few minutes, we'll talk about your book. So Bishop Lowry, could you tell us, I mean, obviously, I'm identifying you as bishop, but how do you fit into this story? So I was a local church pastor for about 30 years, uh, mostly in the uh, old Southwest, well, all in the old Southwest 
well, all but one little piece in the old Southwest Texas Conference, which is now part of the Rio Grande Conference, was elected yeah. the Episcopacy in 2008 and assigned to the Central Texas Conference Fort Worth Episcopal Area, where I served for 13 and a half years. In that tenure, um, uh, I was on the executive committee of the Council of Bishops from 212 uh, to 216, um, served as the lead bishop along with Bishop James Swanson on the Path One Initiative for New Church Development. I'd worked in that field uh, previous. Um, uh, upon retirement uh, on January 1st of uh, 2022, um, um, and I was a retired bishop in the United Methodist Church, but I agreed to serve on the Transitional Leadership Council. And the um, executive committee of the Council of Bishops made it very clear I was no longer welcomed in the wow. United Methodist Church or in the Council of Bishops. I wrote a response to their letter to me, which got published in Firebrand uh, under Crossing the Rubicon. So people can read it in Firebrand the magazine uh, if they want to go online to read it. Parts of that letter are also uh, in our book uh, at one okay. point. And then May 1, when the Global Methodist Church uh, formally organized, um, I uh, resigned my membership in the uh, United Methodist Church's Council of Bishops, which is where bishops' membership resides. And um, I uh, was received into the, into the Global Methodist Church as a retired bishop that, uh, with my credentials recognized. It's a, this is an important aside, but you don't surrender your credentials on leaving the Methodist Church. They're recognized by the Global Methodist Church. Okay. And so I, I was uh, received and, uh, and recognized as a, as a uh, bishop emeritus is the title for a retired bishop in the Global Methodist Church on May 1. And that's my honor and privilege. Um, wow. Along with Jeff, I serve now as a member of the Transitional Leadership Council. Wow. Well, and I, I, there's so much significance in some of the things you said, but as bishop, you were kind of a part of this, the, the facilitation of the discipline. So you know all of these pieces that have gone in place, yet when, when the Global Methodist Church emerged, you were the first bishop to st stand up and be a part of it. So it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, I mean, as people know, I I, I chaired a, a session of the general conference in in Portland in 2016. So, I, yeah, I was in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> now there there are others much more in the middle of it. I think Jeff's story, frankly, is more interesting than mine. I, I was just a bishop trying to be faithful. <laughs> wow. You know, I thought I took vows to God first and foremost. Wow. And and um, I've said often that when they shovel dirt on my casket, I want somebody standing by it, not to say, oh, he was a pastor or he was a bishop or whatever. I'd like somebody standing by to say he was a submitted man. Wow. He gave his life yeah. to Christ. You know? Amen. Jeff, how do you fit into this, this story of what's happening in Methodism? Well, between the two of us, we have 75 years of experience at, at just about every level of the church, uh, pastor, district superintendent on my part, seminary president, uh, board members of seminaries. Um, you know, uh, we, I was a candidate for the Episcopacy. I think God delivered me by taking <laughs> me to Asbury when he did. So I would, I would be spared the heartache I'd be experiencing right now as a member of the Council of Bishops. But uh, six years ago, well, 12 years ago, after the 2012 General Conference, I came home to my board and I told them that we, something has shifted 
and the civility uh, that had existed and the and the commitment of those who lead us in the Council of Bishops to abide by our common polity together is 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 unraveling. Mm. And uh, and I began to plant the seeds in our church board at that time that that we needed to be paying attention to this. Well, uh, six years ago uh in 20 uh in 2016 after the uh before the general conference there were some provocative acts that happened here in west ohio that i was involved in uh in which i brought complaint against a clergy person which is still unresolved wow. six years later it's, there's no questions about the matter of fact it's just a question of a matter of will about whether we want to abide by our polity and in august of that year i was one of uh, 40 or 50 leaders uh, that were invited to come to the woodlands in texas to have a conversation around the formation of a group called the wesleyan covenant association right. long story short out of that meeting uh, we elected a, uh, a uh, we began to elect a, and populate a council that was really charged with building what i always called was an ark uh, mm. on which uh, faithful United Methodists could go and land uh, as uh, as we as the church began to splinter and come apart. Um, I had the privilege of chairing the council uh, for the first four years, four, four and a half years of its existence. Last year and a half, uh, I've been the vice chair as Carolyn Moore has been the chair. But uh, in that process, I, I chaired the, the committee in which was uh, developing the doctrine and disciplines, which uh, has been uh, largely adopted by the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church. And about uh, two years ago, I was uh, invited to participate as one of the 16 or 17 members of the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church. So I've been, uh, I've been, I've, my fingerprints have been involved in uh, both in the United Methodist Church trying to work for us to right ourselves and be obedient to our historic standards and renew ourselves to be in alignment with the big C church of Jesus. Yeah. At the same point, when I came to realize that that was no longer possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's no longer possible. Wow. I began to try to build a system that we could hold one another accountable in that uh, would uh, be movemental in nature and not hierarchical institutional in nature and uh, try to reclaim some of the uh, the energy of our past uh, into the future. Wonderful. Wow. I'm, I really admire the work that you all are doing. And I just look at my friends across the Methodist Church and those who have been working really their whole ministries. Um, and I even looked to somebody like my um, my wife's grandfather, who was on, attended general conferences, Billy Keeve, like for, you know, decades, he participated in this and then it's passed on to my in-laws who have done similar things. And and so I do, that's just like a small piece of what's going on. But the, the reality of you all stepping into these positions and being able to create an organization, create an arc where people can go is incredibly important. And, and, and I see other things happening in, in other denominations within our tradition as well. So it, we look to you as examples, right? And then we appointed you like, don't let's not go down this same road. There, there Some of these denominations, like the one that I come from, the Salvation Army, might have a chance to take some steps to not go there. But unfortunately, there's just movements similar to what's happening in I Methodist Church. Okay, one thing I want to I want to start with, because I think some people will tune in for this, and there's there's some urgency to this moment. And we're recording this on September 22nd. This will like come out sometime in October. But there, there are churches within the sphere of Wesley Biblical Seminary of like you know, pastors who are training here, 
who maybe there's some who are just uh, lay members, board members and say, well, it's not such a big deal. This isn't a time. Let's just see what happens. Let's see what happens at the general conference in 2024. It's uh, let's just worry about being the local church. Let's not let's not think too much about this big picture stuff. After all, I've always been a United Methodist. I don't want to do this. Maybe this is just somebody trying to agitate things. Well, let me just say, I've been telling anybody who will listen for six years. I feel like they're an Orthodox conservative church. Right. But, yeah. I, I've been telling anybody who would listen for six years that that you need to be speaking about this in your local church. And 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 to not do so is conflict avoidant, and it really is pastoral malpractice. Wow. That said, the reason there's an urgency now, the reason we wrote the book when we did and self-published it rather than wait for another publisher to do it, is because the window to get out of the United Methodist Church closes at midnight on December the 31st, 2023. Wow. The provision, the only provision that the Council of Bishops is allowing people to use to leave is a paragraph that was added at the 2019 Special Call General Conference that was supposed to resolve forever our issues on human sexuality. And when it didn't go the way the Council of Bishops had perceived it should go, all of a sudden, we're living in open rebellion and nobody's listening to our, our, our agreed upon polity, except for when it comes to this particular matter. And, huh. uh, and that paragraph expires December the 31st, 2023. I have no confidence that the General Conference in 2024 will have provide an exit ramp for faithful evangelical United Methodist churches to be able to leave the denomination. Okay. No confidence. I was a part of, uh, I wasn't in the room to quote Adam Hamilton. I was outside of the room when the protocol was being negotiated. And United Methodists will be familiar with that language. But yes, yes, yes. when the protocol of uh, reconciliation and grace through separation was being negotiated, um, we were pretty hopeful that we'd be able to amicably separate. But, you know, uh, a global pandemic, three delayed general conferences later, the protocol has effectively been put into legislative oblivion and it will never see the light of day wow and the and the wow. institution those those who are those who are charged with guarding and protecting the institution have are basically closing the circle and making it very difficult and um you know and i get it institutions exist to protect themselves and when an institution feels as if it's as if it's threatened those who are charged with protecting it will do just about anything including violating their own ethos in order to protect that. And so individuals get sacrificed, losses are calculated, uh, decisions are made, narratives are developed that, uh, you know, that that counter the reason that the institution is threatened. Mm. And so uh, I, I think that in the two and a half years since the protocol was approved, the institutionalist institutional preservation nature of the United Methodist Church has kicked in right. and they want to do everything that they can do to guard the assets that have been entrusted to them rather than multiply the church into different expressions. They want to they want to starve one and feed the other. Wow. My and opinion. This process then uh, of trying to get get ahead of December 31st, Bishop, I'll ask you, like, there is a, is a something that's technical within this uh legislation so it, or tell, tell us about what that is and why why do people need to get out now because it's not just like a, a quick one vote piece right sure it's a process 
um, and I think, uh, and I, I want to underline the kind of, um, if you will, warning that Jeff is saying, the clock is ticking on this legislation. And, and I think it is painfully true uh, that, the, that the protocol is uh, legislatively um, a dead issue. I just mm -hmm. I really think those who sit around, and, and I want to say this with some, with some uh, angst, I am a bishop who in the last year of my active episcopacy in the United Methodist Church in the Central Texas Conference said to people, wait for the protocol, just okay. be patient be in prayer, be in discussion, but wait for the protocol. Well, I think that day has passed. Uh, so a couple of things that that take place in this, and and uh, then um, if I may, let me invite Jeff to add to this, because I think he has a better grasp on it than I do. But one is there's a process of discernment that needs to go on for a local congregation, so that when I travel around, I find many local churches uh, have discovered that their pastors have not talked about this. Uh, Jeff alluded yeah. to that fact already. So, so, that we, so that what we're facing is a lot of, um, uh, not just, not, not so much disinformation, but a lot of lack of information. People just don't know. They haven't wrestled with it. And, and I think the phrase conflict avoidant is the right term for it. And I think trying to be conflict avoidant in the middle of a church schism is one of the most dangerous and I believe ultimately unfaithful things one wow. can do. Uh, and I, I want to say that cautiously because yeah, sure. I, think, I think the intent, I think the intent is is gracious you mm. know they want to be kind right. calvin had a, calvin had a phrase where he used to talk about a cruel mercy mm. and i think with pastors who are avoiding this is a cruel mercy anyhow let, let me go back to your question and and just nail it real quick you got to go through a process of discernment which takes a period of prayer a period of study a period of reflection typically in most conferences with your district superintendent being advised and and that sort of stuff before the church votes and then the judicial council in the united methodist church has ruled that the annual conference must vote so not only do you have a local deadline you also have a conference-wide deadline for action on this so when when we say look the clock is ticking you can't sit around and wait for 2024 and uh, th that's simply a fact Mm. So here's my uh, scenario that even here in Mississippi, which a lot of people would think most of the churches are conservative or th theologically orthodox, would affirm the, the the discipline as it stands. There are several churches that I've talked to. They say things like this. Well, we know we're a conservative church. Like, I, well, there might be a couple of people who wouldn't be, but probably 90 percent. But their pastors haven't said a word about it. They haven't entered into the into the process and they, they don't know. Like what's going to happen? So here are local church members and meet me, the Salvation Army guy, telling them, "Look, you need to get started." Like what? What? What do they do, Jeff? Like what should they do at this point? Like they think that this is where their church is, but their pastor's not doing something. What advice do you give them? Yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons we wrote the book. Uh, Multiplying Methodism is available on Amazon. The reason we wrote the book uh, was to help uh, the average layperson, Sunday school class board chair, lay leader. 
uh, pastor to be able to pick this up and have a definitive guide about the first half of the book is why is this necessary and why is this the time? Mm -hmm. And the second half of the book is why we believe that for most United Methodists, not all, but for most United Methodists, the global Methodist church will be the best place for them to land. Mm -hmm. And um, the urgency of this is, uh, I think Bishop Lowry outlined that pretty well. The thing I would add to what he said is that um, each annual conference is developing their own process because the protocol was not considered in 2000 or in 2022 or in 2020 or 2021 or 2022 and it will not be picked up in 2024 but because of that we're living at a time like the book of judges where everybody does what's wise in their own eyes and right. every annual conference has a slightly different approach to taking on that paragraph in the book of discipline i happen to be serving in an annual conference it's been very reasonable you know, we have to pay uh, 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 some apportionments on the way out the door. It's either one or two years, depending on if your church is current. And we have to pay our fair share of the unfunded pension liability. Other than that, we don't have. Uh, and if, if a church received a new church start grant in the last five years, they have to return that. All that said, that's reasonable compared to some other places across the connection. And and once again, churches that are there, there's no time to wait until 2024. And I, I hear this a lot, Andy. I hear pastors right. say, well, nothing's changed. The book of discipline hasn't changed. Well, that's true. I tell people all the time, <laughs> there's really nothing wrong with our present polity at right. all, except that it's not enforceable. We're not governable. We right. can't hold anybody accountable. And the thing I would add is that, especially for folks in Mississippi and places that have been blessed to have more evangelical bishops like Central Texas had with Bishop Lowry, is that uh, there's a bunch of bishops who either have retired or are retiring now. Mm. And the United Methodist Church has elected its last evangelical bishop. Wow. I would want to mm -hmm. add... Yeah, go it ahead. will not happen again. And, and so this, this idea that you won't have to compromise your values, you won't have to compromise your principles, when the person in the chair that has the absolute authority to make the appointment has a different agenda, that hurts churches. Mm. And it's not, it doesn't take long for that to deteriorate in, mm. a, in an annual conference culture. Bishop, I'm sorry, I stepped on you. No, there. no, no, that's quite all right. And in Boy, folks, I hope you've heard what Jeff shared. I, I want to put an exclamation mark on Let's it. it. Uh, the one other thing I would want to add, by the way, is that the way civil courts have ruled lately mean that not only are you subject to, to different conferences acting in different ways, uh, I like Jeff's allusion to the book of Judges, everyone's doing what they think is right in their own kingdom, if you will, uh, or in their own realm. Uh, but on top of that, civil courts have ruled that this is that trust clause issues are often a matter of state law. Interesting. So, for instance, that gets ruled one way in the state of Texas, in a very different way in the state of Ohio. Mm. And 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 I wouldn't begin to answer how it's going to be ruled in Florida, which is currently involved in a lawsuit with something like 106 churches or some number over 100 uh, uh, precisely on trust clause issues. So on top of the conference issue, you, you have issues of civil law 
to be considered. And you can't assume that the law in one state is the same as in another. Correct me if I'm wrong about the trust clause. So the trust clause is essentially this piece of of discipline, not discipline, of legislation or organization or constitution. Go ahead, Jeff. You're going to yeah. Yeah. The, the trust clause uh, actually goes all the way back to John Wesley. Okay. When societies were purchasing property, had a trust clause put in the property that if they ever ceased being a Methodist movement, the, the property would revert to the denomination. The reason for it, the historical reason for the trust clause was to assure doctrinal integrity. Mm-hmm. Well, the ship has sailed on that a long time ago. The purpose of the trust clause in the present setting is to hold people together, to hold something together. And, and so the, 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 and, and in Ohio, the, uh, the courts would rule in favor of the annual conference every time. So churches would have to release their property to be able to leave. That's why having the protocol or having the protocol in place would have been great. That's why 2553 is the only paragraph we can use because it gives a way for churches to fulfill the requirements to have a release of trust so they take their property and assets with them and it's not just such as real estate it's it's all the accounts it's all the assets it's all of the property the real property that a church has accumulated over time so most united methodists don't understand this but the local church doesn't own their building they mm-hmm. hold it in trust for the denomination for the annual conference actually so that's why the second vote has to take place for the annual conference to release the to release the the church uh the denominationally so the conference trustees can then release the trust clause and it doesn't matter how much your family how many millions of dollars your family has raised for that church building through how many generations of clergy persons came in in your family came out of that church or out of the denomination doesn't matter so let me put it this way the pew bible okay (laughs) that exists in your local church belongs uh under the trust yes you know what i mean and and if you flip those open as in most cases the hymnal or the bible or whatever you know is given by so and so in memory of you know, a beloved grandmother or something, uh, you know, one of the saints who's gone on to their reward. And, uh, you know, we can't emphasize this enough. And, and, and I thought both of you got at the fact that this process is not a quick process. This is not calling together and voting next week. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, I'm, uh, our church conference is this next Sunday, September 25th. And I've been preparing our church for publicly for six years, privately for 10. Okay. And, uh, and, and you can't believe the volume of work, the, the hoops that have to be jumped through, that I have to jump through to document what we have so that the conference knows what they're signing off on to release. Wow. It, you know, I'm grateful. I, my board chair told me the other night, he said, I don't know how small churches that don't have people to help get this done. Right. Because it takes time. It's extensive. Where do you recommend people go? I mean, uh, will your book help with some of that? Or is there is there some place they could go to for advice for how to <laughs> functionally do this? Yeah, the, 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 the book, the first four chapters of the book really make the case for why. But the last the last part of the book, there's an addendum or an appendix where we have some recommended resources. And, and there's a list of those resources there. They could go to the Wesleyan Covenant Association website to get help on getting out 
and go to the Global Methodist Church website to get clarity about what's coming. Uh, they could go to, there's a website called peopleneedjesus.org where Chris Ritter has done a compendium of all things that have happened in the United Methodist Church around this issue for the last six years. He's got them all in one location, which could make you your head hurt and your stomach ache at the same time as you read through those. But that gives you a, there's a, there's a whole host of information that's out there um, for people that need to be educated. That's really helpful. You're talking about the ownership of the church. And in, in my tradition, it follows uh, William Booth adapted a version of Methodism, Methodist New Connection in England, and then it took it to an extreme form so that everything for all time was technically owned by the general of the Salvation Army. So the kind of a, as somebody who grew up in a Salvation Army pastor's home or officer's home, the, the phrase could be said, don't jump on the general's couch right? Because like it all was owned by the general. And, and now it's kind of worked down in a corporate way to each each area. And um, unfortunately, like the, everything that's within the system legally has that. But this is the what you have is the kind of internal discipline or internal legislation that gives this one opportunity. I just want to highlight again, folks, if you've not done this, or if this hasn't happened in your church, you haven't heard about it, uh, go to your pastor and say, we need to have this conversation. Maybe your church won't do it. Maybe there won't be the, the will from your congregation. But 2022, September 2022, now is the time to get this moving. Anything else you want to add to the urgency before we get on to some of the, uh, the vision of what your book is saying? It's not just what we're going leave running, not right, leaving, but it's what we're going to that I think I love. But I loved, I still think this moment of getting out is an important thing to highlight. So I want to make sure to give you guys space to say that whatever needs to be said there. So the only other thing I'd add is that is that we counsel reasonableness in terms of pension. Okay. okay, so so where and where you stand on pension obligations varies um, from conference to conference, depending on how they've had it. So um, no one's going to escape pension obligations. And the global Methodist Church is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but is also going to work with Westpath so that pastors uh, and churches don't need to really worry about their pension. That That is taken care of in ways that are fair and reasonable. And, and nor do retirees. You know, my dad was a United Methodist clergy person. He's been gone for 13 years, but my mother lives on that pension. And I had people early in the process call my mother and say that I was going to have her pension taken away because of what I was doing. <laughs> oh, my Which, goodness. That's just, that's just dirty pool. But the fact of the matter is, is the reason we're paying the pension obligations on the way out the door is to guarantee in perpetuity the, the fulfillment of all the pension obligations that have been established over the 52-year history of the church. So, so those I'm are like, secure. Yeah, yeah. So what I, yeah, so I stepped on Jeff and I don't want it. His comment, those are secure, is needs to be carefully heard. Um, and what I uh, like to tell people, because it's true and they need to understand it, is pension stuff is actually governed by United States law in the United States. That's not something a general conference can do. And so they can't take away your pension uh, any more than General Motors can take away the pension of people that have worked for General Motors. I mean, that, mm. you know, there's civil law that covers that. And I also want to add, and I've already said it, but boy, if you don't mind, let me undermine it. Bishop. Yeah, yeah let, let me undermine it. The Global Methodist Church is working with, with Westpath. 
I mean, you know, we have is a, this a is this a corporation. Is this like a, a th- oh, I'm no. sorry. West West Path is the general agency of the United Methodist Church uh, uh, that used to be called the General Board of Pension and Health Benefits. So okay. it, so um, it's now called West Path and the pension part of that um, uh, is something that we're working in conjunction with. Jeff, Jeff can add to it. I think he has a better grasp. Yeah, the um, the short version of this is when the General Conference meets for the United Methodist Church, uh, it will be closing out the latest of what is three different pension segments of the pension plan of the United Methodist Church, all of which the previous ones have defined benefit portions to them. And they'll be moving to a defined contribution plan in 2024. That is going to happen. The, uh, the plan that has been developed for the Global Methodist Church is a is a defined contribution plan that mirrors what is being offered in the United Methodist Church. So they're, they're separate plans. West Path rebranded itself several years ago to prepare for this eventuality that it could serve more than just United Methodist congregations. And uh, the other thing that West Path is gonna partner with us on is the development of a, a denomination-wide health, health, health insurance system to be offered to all the clergy and lay employees of the church. This is that's a, a key question because some people will chalk up the moving away at this point to say, well, there's so many things to think about. We have pension, we have health care. We have well, there's your answer, folks. <laughs> so, I mean, so Jeff, if if all, in all likelihood, I don't want to assume that your church will vote to disaffiliate, but it seems like that groundwork has been laid by leadership of your church. You still have years to serve. What will right. this mean for, for you personally? As so I will uh, I will retire as okay. a United Methodist on December 31st. Okay. I will withdraw from the United Methodist Church on January 1st, and I'll be an active elder in the Global Methodist Church beginning at that time. My pension in the United Methodist Church will be sealed in my retirement. I have I'll have 37 and a half years of service in. Now, to those listening, if you have 20 years or under. That's a different conversation, but you need to call West Path to see what those implications would be for you. There are different paragraphs for less than 20 years of service, 20, 30, 35, and 40. And West Path will confidentially work with you. They will tell you exactly what the implications are, and they will tell you what would be best, the best advice for you at that particular time. And uh, so I will move, you know, I'll, 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 my church will, con- will just continue to pay, but they'll pay into a new fund starting January of 2023. Now, the healthcare system, healthcare questions is a little bit more complicated, but every annual conference gives you the right to purchase up to a year after you withdraw. It's not COBRA, but it's like COBRA. And so it's going to take a little bit of time for the group of the new denomination to fill out so there's enough critical mass to be able to, for, for that insurance to be to be bid upon and prices to be set. But um That'll happen in in January 1 of 2024. So for the next year, I'm going to purchase the health care from the West Ohio Conference and have the same health care I've had so that as the as the denomination populates and there's enough people in the pool, we'll be able to they'll be able to price out the insurance premiums going on. So that's all that's being cared for. This yeah. is so good to hear. And, and look, some people might be saying, oh, all these administrative details, I don't really want to think about this. But I'm telling you, there's a reason to think about this. And it has to do with the fact that we believe that God created, I'm going to back up here. And Bishop, I have a question coming for you at this. 
Right. God created the world out of nothing, that he revealed himself through the scripture of the Old New Testament. Jesus was raised from the dead, that he has a place of he's taking the world. Like we want to, and you know, that means that we need to think about some of these details. Bishop, could you tell us a bit, like what is the picture of what makes this worth it for you to work through all of these administrative challenges? Well, I think the, the first and most basic thing we need to talk about is faithfulness to God, who's come in Christ through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, you know, I mean, think about, think about our faith. We're a faith built on the blood of martyrs. Mm. We're built on those who gave it all, you know, uh, to stand up for Christ and, and, and for the God who is, who is incarnate, who has come to us and is continuing with us, uh, the Holy Spirit present in our lives. And so first and foremost, we actually need to go back to the basics. Our faithfulness is not to an institution. That doesn't mean institutions don't matter. They do. Doesn't mean they aren't important. They are important. But first and foremost, um, we think and we believe that we are called into faithfulness to God. And part of faithfulness is, is to actually place our trust in God. So um, I like to quote the old camp meeting hymn, trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And a, and a, and a, a way we can think of, um, uh, of, of the Christian faith, of the biblical concept of fide, is, is that in the old Roman lexicon, it actually came closer to a sense of fidelity or allegiance Amen. Yeah. than it did to, to just sort of intellectual belief or saying the magic words and you're saved or, or something like that. And so foundationally, uh, we think that's what's at stake. We have a chapter in the book uh, that we talk about being on the right side of history. And, and, uh, and that's uh, one of those chapters where both of us can point to paragraphs we wrote in that chapter. We did it very much together, if you will. And, and, uh, and in that, we talk about the, the, the foundational sense that we are called to be a people who actually live trusting God. Yes, I think I think Christ is worthy. I mean, I think it's it's that basic. Wow. And we're not pretending it'll be easy. It won't be. You know, uh, one of the things someone should hear by now is it's much more complex than people think. Okay, and and one needs to understand that. But in it all, there there is a joy in walking with the Lord, and right. so. Let's get back to let's get back to found the foundational issues of our faith. Mm. This is a, and one of the challenges that come from this, Jeff, is like it, we have to make a clear statement that if walking with the Lord and consistent consistently with the Orthodox witness from Scripture and like mm -hmm. what the Methodist movement has meant, it means that we're there's a subtle way that we're suggesting that if you move against that tradition, you're you're not. This is like, this is a hard thing to say because then, then, then people, oh, you're making a good and a bad side or this type of thing. Um, it, like, Jeff, are we, is there, is it an either or here? Well, Andy, I loved uh, at the beginning of the, of the podcast you were, uh, you were uh, putting out there about your book about Jude. Yeah. Right. That's a key part of what we've been talking about, about contending for the faith that's been once entrusted to the saints. Um, 
the language I've been, the image I use when I'm out speaking to churches about this is I'll use a rubber band and I'll say sometimes the way you change people is you kind of move a band. You can use a rubber band to illustrate. You move it and they put, come along, you move it and they come along, you move it and they come along. What's happened in the United Methodist Church is, is faithful people have put a stake in the ground in 1972 and said, we are not moving from here. Meanwhile, progressives have continued to move off the map so that this rubber band is stretched to its very seams or to its end. Uh, one of the images in my Methodist church was it was established to be a big tent of Methodism where we kind of all lived in this underneath the same tent. Well, the, the tent is coming apart at the seams because we use the same words, we quote the same scriptures, we cite the same sermons of John Wesley, we pledge fidelity to the same book of discipline, but we're really talking about entirely different expressions of faith. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to throw a rock at somebody who has a different expression of faith. I'm just saying that is not the tradition out of into which I was ordained. That is not the best of the tradition of the Wesleyan movement. Yeah. And uh, and we are trying to, to reclaim the historic understanding of those words. For example, when you and I talk about Jesus, we talk about the incarnate living son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, physically died, was placed in a tomb. Three days later, physically rose again, walked on the earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit 10 days later. We believe that that's a historical fact that has changed the face of the human family. But I have friends that uh, cross their fingers behind their back when they were being asked that question during ordination. And they think it's just an allegory of the kind of a metaphor of what God does when he intersects in people's lives. And, and so what I would say is either Jesus is who he said he is and did everything he promised he would do, or we have absolutely nothing life-changing and life-giving to offer the world. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that for us is balancing grace and truth, right? See, grace without truth, which, by the way, there's a whole segment of the church that wants to talk about grace all the time. And I'm I'm there. I want to talk yeah. about grace. But grace without truth is licensed to do whatever you want, and it doesn't change anybody's life. Mm. But truth without grace is legalism. Mm. And that's repugnant to me. But grace and truth together in the right balance is Jesus, full of grace and truth. Amen. And and when 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 we meet Jesus, life's change, and He invites us to walk with Him uh, from this life into the next. And so, you know, for the folks who think that uh, you know Orthodox, Evangelical, United Methodists are just a bunch of ham-fisted Luddites, um, I would just tell you that uh, I, I I understand that the truth of Scripture is like guardrails that are put in place to keep our lives out of the ditch. <laughs> and when we jump the guardrails and our life ends up in the ditch, guess what? Jesus is there with us and he pulls us right back on the path. We don't have to go back, start all over again. He pulls us back on the path, faces us in the right direction, and we keep walking. Mm. And that's the kind of faith that we want to be. I think that's what Wesley offered. Mm. I think that's the best of our tradition. And that's what we're trying to reclaim, not license to do whatever you want and not a not a, a ham-fisted legalism that hurts people, but rather a life-giving balance of grace and truth. That's what we're after. Amen. Oh, what a beautiful picture. I, a few weeks ago, I had on my podcast, Dr. Roger Olson, who doesn't come from the you know, Methodist tradition, maybe the more evangelical, broad like tradition, and he's an Arminian, but he suggested that what we have in theological liberalism, again, not thinking about the United Methodist Church, 
but just theological liberalism in general is a different religion. He said, we might as well call it Unitarianism. Like we might as well say that that's what this is. And it now, is, uh, go ahead, Bishop. I, I like to say we, we have a version of Methodism that is Unitarian United Methodism. Oh, there you go. And, and, uh, and for us, the issue is not, do we love people uh, who are homosexual? The answer right. is yes. Is grace for them? Yes. Um, do we want to walk with with folks uh, that have a different sexual attraction? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, our care does not stop. This is that's why for us we believe so deeply. This is about orthodoxy. And mm -hmm. if you if you look at the opening thing, we list five deeply theological reasons. Je Jeff's lined them out. Uh, for you real real quickly yeah. uh, uh, that are part of why we think it's time to make a change and then we add the sixth to it which which is a which is to use church language is ecclesiological it, it, that is to say it's about organization and that is that the united methodist church as it is has become ungovernable mm. so that, so that part of the issue is uh, I like to say to people hey I, I i was a bishop who was being faithful to the discipline as it was written and I upheld it, you know, the, um, anyhow, yeah. I, I get ahead of myself. So what we want to point to is, is the Orthodox faith. And, uh, you know, I made a note on my pad about your book on Jude. I, I do think uh, that that's really good. And I can remember uh, Jeff and I served together in the, on the board of United Theological Seminary, which I, I, I do a quick advertisement for, I think is a wonderful seminary. Uh, and I remember Jeff and I got together for coffee after a board meeting one day over near the airport. I was getting ready to catch a flight and Jeff drive back to Reynoldsburg. And, and uh, we sat there and, and one of the things we ended up into is looking at the book of Jude and mm. looking at the, the faith once delivered. And so um, what's at stake here is not loving people. Right. That's what's so, at stake so, here is orthodoxy. Yeah, Bishop alluded to these five things. There, there are five fundamental theological differences that have stretched that rubber band out. Mm -hmm. We don't agree on the nature, role, and authority of Scripture. Our yeah. hermeneutics are entirely different. We don't agree on the nature, role, and divinity of Jesus. Mm. Our understanding of Christology is different. We don't agree on the nature, role, and the need for, for of atonement for sin. Right. We we don't agree on it, on what justification is. Mm. And we don't agree on sanctification, because if we agreed on sanctification, we wouldn't want to be acknowledging different pet and pro pet sins to say that they're okay. We would want people to be saved to the uttermost, to quote Wesley. Yeah. And so part of part of what we're involved in, part of the reason we're hopeful about what we're trying to build, is it's really about a theological renewal. Mm, it's mm -hmm. a, a theological renewal of of the theology and the and the fundamental practice of a movement that changed our world a couple hundred years ago, and was the primary shaper of the spiritual development of a nation uh, into the middle of the eighteen fifty until the middle of the eighteen hundreds, and uh, ever since then we've been living on the fumes of what that was as we've kind of lost the class meeting and we lost all these different pieces and part of what we have the opportunity to do is to embed some of those back into the dna of the church and see it flourish again yeah. 
it's interesting as you rob those points what's interesting is in jude it, it's somewhat submerged because jude uses these strange sources after you get in verses you know basically five to 24 we know the end now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling we know contend for the faith but then all this this is interesting stuff about moses's body and angels and in, different things but i'm telling you behind all of that and it takes a while to unpack it it are clear words even about human sexuality that need to be expressed in our time. Interesting enough, uh, William Barclay said that it's during periods of revival throughout church history that the book of Jude has been recovered. Like it's, a, it's an interesting moment. And, and my study has been interesting. I wrote, I had it in mind. It's a, it's a actually a video study for small groups and it's be, going to become a book. But like you, I wanted to get it out there. I was thinking of my denomination, which is struggling like with the, um, early signs of these same things, like where there are regions of the Salvation Army that are are moving against our shared beliefs. And we have a different- Actually, Andy, I watched that podcast where you and Matt Friedman were doing that together. Because oh. I, I, I saw the news, I said, I bet you Andy's going to say something about this. So I just kind of <laughs> watched. <laughs> well, thank you for watching. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it's exactly what we're, we're dealing with. And so I, I did this study for that, but then to my surprise, um, well, those people in the Salvation Army are using it, but it's, oh, I had Rob Renfro on to, to talk about some of the things that were happening probably two months ago, and I offered a discount code. Well, I have all kinds of churches that are using it in the disaffiliation process, <laughs> and I was not thinking United Methodism when I wrote it and, and the Emerging Globe Method. So I, I, I told Rob this just this week that all of the codes were taken, so I doubled the code. So if you use the code ROB, R-O-B, you can get 50% off this study. Okay, so I, but yeah, I, I got to write that down. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. You had advertisement. I let an advertisement for United, WBS, throw that one back in there. So, okay. Now, now Jeff, this is interesting to think of like where we're going. Like what, describe this scene, a picture of what a, a church that's faithful to its shared beliefs can be. I, I'm actually serving one uh, okay. because I've had a front row seat to see what's coming. Uh, let me just give you two or three examples. Uh, one of the things that um, we've done in the last three years is we've launched uh, 25 to 30 what we're calling Wesley groups, which are really class meetings. And um, in those class meetings, uh, we start we launch new ones every five, every four months. Mm -hmm. So it gives people the opportunity to dive in and, and to and be, and it's not about information, it's about transformation. The material we developed to help them along is based upon the sermon of that week. So we're reinforcing what's been spoken on the week, but also building the accountability pieces into it. But here's, here's what's happening here. I, um, there are 250 or so United Methodist churches in a 50 mile radius of Columbus, Ohio, and only 20 or 25 of us are going to go in the global Methodist church. And the word is out. And every Sunday we have people coming from other churches that are looking for what we're having to offer. We've received, you know, there to probably 150 new people in the last three months have started coming here. And uh, now here's what I know. Some of them are driving 40 miles. Wow. And they, that's not sustainable. Yeah. 
And so what we're doing is we're planting the seed that uh, at least five of those Wesley groups are going to become micro house churches strategically Mm -hmm. located around the Columbus area so that people can gather together and maybe worship online with us and then have their class meeting and then be in ministry together. And over time, that could develop into its own congregation in that kind of a setting. And uh, I had somebody give me a little bit of a hard time about that about a month ago. and, And I said, you don't understand this church's history, do you? This church started as a class meeting in a blacksmith shop about a half mile from our present location 190 years ago. Wow. It was one of 30 preaching points on a circuit. Wow. And 190 years later, 20 of those 30 preaching points are now standalone congregations. Wow. And so we're, we're just trying to reclaim some of our DNA, but that's that's part of what that oh, looks like. Yeah. It, it, it looks like lifting the value of accountable discipleship. It looks like being missionally engaged in your community. It looks like it looks like so we're asking each one of those Wesley groups to find their place of mission to pray about what God is leading them to do in our community. So instead of just the church having large serving opportunities, we're, we're empowering 25 to 30 small groups of people, little the ecclesiola within the ecclesia, to actually be church in 30 different unique ways. And we're actually, that initiative is starting this month, this mm-hmm. month to do that. And it's amazing to see the kind of things they're going to they're they're doing. So it, it looks like uh, a a a modernized version of an old process yeah. of of class meetings, which we call Wesley groups, that are on mission in their community because we want to see the lost saved, we want to see the saved discipled, and we want to see the disciples making and sending disciples. See, we're called to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what it looks like. Gotcha. Beautiful. Bishop, you want to add to that? Uh, sort of a, an emphatic amen. So <laughs> if, if, if one looks at this, it, it involves um, taking seriously commitments that are embedded at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, 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 reclaiming, if you will, of the heart of the Christian faith. So when Jeff talks, we're talking about human thriving with a conversion that is real, not simply a minor improvement um, um, on the human condition, but a genuine conversion to Christ as Lord and Savior. We're talking about missional engagement in a way that has a hands-on component with real people in real human situations. We're talking about being global uh, from day one, because we will find some of these local groups that will that will engage uh, across the street, and we're going to find some that are going to engage across the world. And, and we're and we're talking about here, I think, a genuine recovery of an evangelistic impulse that's not taking sta- scalps, but rather about life transformation. About I like to say, human thriving at its very best comes under the lordship of Jesus. And that's what we're after, not settling for a cultural image that is ultimately idolatrous, but rather rather living under the lordship of Christ. Will we do that perfectly in the GMC? Absolutely not. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, I think I got it from Jeff, but I may have gotten it from somebody else before him that, you know, if you want a perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it because once you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my wife will be glad to tell you that about me. Um, but at the same time, we want a church where it's real, Amen. where people are submitted to Christ, where they where they actually love their neighbors, whether their neighbors agree with them or not, where they're actually right, right. reaching out uh, to the hurting and hungry, whether it's at home or across the world. So we do, by the way, talk in those five things. Um, or, or in the, we have a closing chapter on, on reasons to join the GMC. And one of the things we talk about, we're going to be global from day one. Mm. This isn't, this isn't going to be an, ex, this isn't going to be a retreat from the world, but an embrace of it in the early Christian way in which we say we're in, but not of the world. And I, I think fundamentally what we're about in this book is the issue of lordship is to say, is, is the culture going to be your Lord, which means it's an idol, right. or, or, is, or is Jesus Christ your Lord? And that to be on the right side of history is to have him as your Lord and not Amen. the culture. Dean Inge's famous quote is one I really like here, he, and I'm going to slightly paraphrase it. He or she who marries the present age will be a widow in the next, or a widower. Wow. And, and the wow. book is multiplying methodism a bold witness of wesleyan faith at the dawn of the global methodist church jeff you wanted to add something there well bishop lowry in one of the chapters really did a good job of laying a foundational framework for this church that i think it captures four pillars it is going to stand on it's genuinely orthodox it's truly wesleyan it's unashamedly evangelistic and it's passionately missional Mm. those are four corners of a foundation upon which we built what's coming. Yeah. I'm curious, as somebody working in theological education, one of the key ways that the, unfortunately, the global method of the United Methodist Church began to slip was losing theological orthodoxy at most of the seminaries, particularly particularly the um, denominationally affiliated ones. Um, nevertheless, like this is an interest to me, and you guys are both on the board at United Seminary, at Wesley Biblical Seminary. We're interested in making sure we're available to serve, particularly those like in our region, but also we have a, a global reach as well. Uh, obviously, Asbury Seminary. Talk to me about what you think I know it's I know it's not just up to you two, but, but I know you've been in the to quote Hamilton, the room where it's happened. Um, so what what's theological education going to be like in the GMC? Bishop, you want to answer first, you want me to answer first? Uh, so for, so so let me let me give a, a, a quick frame. I, I, I well, we want to be careful here We're you're getting our opinions and and the GMC in its own general conference could change this. But I, but I don't imagine, I don't imagine us endorsing certain seminaries, uh, but rather buying into a process of faithfulness. Okay. And I, and I think that's a distinctly different way to look at it. Um, the issue is an issue of orthodoxy. And we believe ultimately orthodox seminaries are going to thrive in places that aren't won't. Mm, and, right. And uh, in fact, we write in the we write in the book uh, about different seminaries where y- if you go in and look, 
you have a hard time even finding the word Christ. It's there, but it's, you know, three pages deep in their introduction. Wow. Go ahead, Jeff. I, well, uh, Andy, as long as I can remember, um, I've had conversations with people at Wesley Biblical. When I was at Asbury, President and I from Wesley Biblical and I had regular conversations. And uh, the politics of the United Methodist Church prevented Wesley Biblical from ever being considered by University Senate. Um, we are not going to have uh, denominational seminaries. We okay. are going to encourage our money that's going to su support uh, students to follow the student to the seminary. And uh, here's a word for you. I encourage you to reach out to Angela Pleasance. You can find her information on the GMC website. And there's an application process for, for seminaries to be considered for broad endorsement by the Transitional Leadership Council. Um, there, It's interesting to hear some of the seminaries that are are applying, which I would say over my dead body, okay. you know, some of them, um, but that'll be a conversation that the Transitional Leadership Council will have so that we can begin to to, to kind of uh, signal to the rest of the church that fidelity we're after. Uh, you know, Bishop and I both serve on the Board of United. It's a miracle what's happened at that seminary in the last 15 years. It's really kind of shifted back into a, there's a strongly orthodox center there. Um, but I also know that's one dean or one president away from from fragility, right? And so uh, that's the same way with it would be for Asbury or for Wesley. I mean, you, it's who you have in place matters. And so um, my encouragement is to uh, is to go ahead and and do what's necessary to get in that queue, because we uh, there will be seminaries that will be we will be sending students to that would never have been able to receive United Methodist students because the university senate would never have approved them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are there are students there and and but at the end of the day we're going to be looking at the fruit of the seminary born out in the product of the of the product that it produces and uh, so I'm looking forward to that kind of conversation. I've had you know Steve Blakemore and I were in seminary together. Oh right. Yeah, Matt Friedman and I were in seminary together. You know I know all those I know those folks and that's that'll be a rich conversation. Of course you're there now too. So uh, yeah. we look forward to the future as far as that goes. Yeah, and we we uh we have our application in. We got that in almost as soon as we knew it was there. Like we want Good. to be like this. This is the point I think for like on our side. I think what you're gonna find is as the global Methodist Church emerges, there are people in the evangelical Wesleyan tradition who now I think can come to United Method uh, Global Methodism and say, "Hey, you're our brother, or you are us." Like even even for me personally, that might be. It's hard for me to imagine. Like, let's say I was looking for a church right now. I, I, be, I couldn't quite join a United Methodist Church in light right. of the things that are happening. I, I just read an article, Jeff, from your area. And that, I know you're originally from like Western Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Crazy thing, this this uh, guy puts up, United Methodist pastor puts out a thing to talk about how he's polyamorous, how he longs for a day of being able to introduce not only his wife, but his girlfriend and hopefully his future, future same-sex partners. Right. Yeah. This is that. So let me tell you. Yeah, that's from Western Pennsylvania. Let me just tell you the backstory about that. The progressives okay. in Western Pennsylvania said, "Oh, this is a something that the evangelicals made up. It's not true." Well, it is true. The pastor's been suspended, and is under complaint. Oh, well, there you go. So, but but interestingly enough, it's uh, it it's a uh, yeah that that's what's coming. 
that's what's coming. So and it's not a scary so judgment about go ahead. Oh, so I'm sorry, Bishop. I want to ask you, like, because you were a part of this and you had to deal with it on a regular basis. One of the things that I highlight is like, well, you have a church that has an ordained practicing lesbian bishop and that was a colleague of yours. Never, I mean, this is this is not a scare attack that this is the truth. What, but what were you gonna what were you gonna say there, Bishop? I'm sorry if I jumped in front of you. Oh no, no, that's all right. Uh, I I think go ahead. I was I was just going to add something about seminaries and and oh please yeah I like a, your process comment. We're going to judge them by the fruit and and uh, we're in a day in which in America in which as we move into a post Christendom world in the United States we have more seminaries than we ha have need of and and already <laughs> there is a fight if you will for students to admit mm. and and, it, and we're i think one of the things i'm gonna i'm gonna predict is you're gonna see evangelical seminaries and by that i don't mean the stand, standard uh, use of that term i mean seminaries that that are genuinely orthodox let me use that instead of evangelical they're 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 gonna grow and they're gonna grow because the pastors they produce are more capable i i, I keep going back to this theme this really is about human thriving folks uh, jesus said i've come that you might have life and have it yet more abundantly Amen. and and that's real that's that's not jesus kind of spinning something yeah well, I can confirm that, that that's true. I don't know the statistics for the other seminaries, but for us, we have the largest enrollment in our history. You might not believe it. I mean, if you've been, been to our campus, we have more than 400 students right now. Right. I mean, and, and this, is, this is at a time where theological education, uh, and, and not just in United Methodism, but is retracting. You look at Gordon-Conwell, Trinity, Fuller, each have taken major steps back. And I hope that them taking those steps back administratively, functionally, will help them continue to grow. But part of it, like, Wesley, here we are, like, claiming our inheritance as the authority of scripture and using the word inerrancy because we want to make sure that we're, we're connected to this truth that the Bible does not err. At the same time, we're also like promoting every class that we have at Wesley Biblical Seminary. At some point in the class, the professor testifies to God's sanctifying work in their life and calls upon others, as John Wesley says, seek it now. I mean, this is, people would say that, that oh, you're some backwards group. Well, that's actually bringing people to the Methodist tradition. So I'm excited about what's going to happen in this broader pan-Wesleyan movement. So it's encouraging too that you're not trying to, that the Global Methodist Church isn't trying to start the Global Methodist Seminary. Instead, use these seminaries no. faithful. Actually, yeah. one of the things, Andy, we're committed to is being as lean as possible when it comes to institutional structure. One of the things that happened in the United Methodist Church is the power structure of the church began populated by people who are not representative of the average person in the pew. And, and, and it doesn't take long to take a ship a different direction if it's so dependent upon the structure and systems to do so. So it's, it's a lean, mean, you know, process we're involved in right now. It's amazing what we've been able to do in the last six years with about a, a thousand people giving their time. Wow. You know, the WC only had three three employees for the longest time wow. and everything else was done by volunteers. So we know it can be done. Um, and so as we move into the future, the, the goal is not to 
be United Methodist 2.0 in system structure, theology, or approach, but rather be the Global Methodist Church, which reclaims our historic Wesleyan tradition. Beautiful. In fact, in fact, in our book, we're very clear about that. This is not just a slightly cleaned up, culturally right version of the UMC. Wow. This really, this really is a church that reclaims foundational uh, Orthodox doctrine that that reinvests in sanctification. That you know that that moves forward uh, across that front. This is not a place to to retrench away from the world. This is a this is a, a place to em, embrace the world in a transforming way under the Lordship of Christ. Amen. And it, it it is it is at at stake a theological and faith issue i have two more questions um one uh i like for you both to think about your uh wesleyan sibling denominations like uh salvation army nazarene church free methodist wesleyan and, and the like all, all all of us who are a little bit are definitely smaller but are experiencing these same challenges I th i'm not everyone's equal i've already alluded to the challenges in the salvation army and i think the nazarene church has similar things happening in there particularly in their um educational institutions um what is your advice to the other denominations who are are going through what maybe what you, was the methodist church is doing maybe United methodist church 20 30 years ago so uh Bishop, could you answer that first? Like, what's your advice to these other guys? And I, Jeff, I'd love to get your take on that, too. Go ahead, Bishop. Um, boy, I, you know, that's a, that's a big subject. But I, but I think, I think it, this starts with, with, with just foundational kind of stuff. And, and for starters, uh, there is a battle uh, uh, that is going on of, for the mind and heart uh, of various church groups, denominations, if you will, and that a return, a return to what I call core orthodoxy is, or genuine orthodoxy is, is absolutely central. I think a part of that, and one of the very good trends we are seeing today is a return to spiritual formation and, and a foundation built on the Holy Trinity. Yes. So that, so that uh, one of my, uh, one of my cautions to other de denominations that are a part of the Wesleyan family is beware, beware of following um, um, a cultural accommodationist trend. Yeah. That, that however, however kind that may seem, that is in the long run cruel. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that cautious word. Uh, Jeff, what do you say to other Wesleyan denominations? Well, first of all, I'm not nearly as well versed in that struggle as yeah. uh, as they are. From the outside looking in, I think the Wesleyan Church has done the best job of all of them to try and 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 clearly, definitively state this is who we are. I think I think the Nazarene Church is about ten to fifteen years behind where the United Methodist Church is, honestly, and part of that is because of the seminary issues. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I, Bishop Lowry's given a good word here. I, you know, the narrative out there is that if we don't learn how to accommodate, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. We're going to lose a generation. Honestly, Andy, that's not what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing God moving among a younger generation of people who really yearn for a holy life, who really yearn for the kind of transformation that God offers us in Christ. And I think a Wesleyan construct is, is 
is is a is an is a much more um is a much uh, more gracious expression than a neo-calvinist construct and uh and i think uh the so i i would i would really encourage them to uh prayerfully uh put their put their stakes in the ground be very clear about who they are without apology and uh and when persons are not able to abide by that use their polity to bring correction yeah use uh, it. you know use your polity and um and i and i'm watching you know i i i hope I hope that some of the other smaller holiness denominations will take a cue from what the Wesleyan Church clearly did at their last general conference. I mean, that that was, I don't know if you followed that or not, but they they there were clear statements coming out of that this last spring that were helpful. Wow, use so. yeah, the polities there. It is expression of our it's, yeah, it's a part of our theology. Let's make sure that we're incorporating and using it. I think like if if the, the functions are there, and that's what didn't happen. Well, what's terminal what's terminal in many of our cases is what i call dysfunctional politeness mm. uh, several years ago i was i had a leadership consultant i was involved with at, at a at a board i was on who came in and dramatically changed the culture of that place for good in in about a two-hour conversation and i was amazed by what i saw so i took him out for a piece of pie i said hey i need you to tell me what you just did and it, it, i'll never forget this he said do you know what the problem is with you church people? <laughs> I said, well, I can think of several, but why don't you tell me what you think it is? Because I'm plundering the Egyptians here, right? <laughs> and uh, and he said, well, you're nice. Mm. You're so nice that you will put up with behaviors that are detrimental and will cause the death of the thing you say you love the most. Oh, man. When in really, reality, what you need to be is kind and honest. Mm. And if you're kind and honest and you be who you say and you and you you are who you say you are and you do what you say you will do, that will be better for everybody in the long run. And right. I, I think dysfunctional politeness is the bane of the existence in the evangelical Methodist movement because we we want to be liked. Yeah, sure. And and I don't think Wesley was dysfunctionally polite one day in his life. <laughs> Not from what I've read. Yeah. Now that didn't mean he was rude or anything like that, but he was kind and honest. He, yeah. this is the way it is. And uh, I think I, I and, and one last piece is I would go back if they if they have not done so in a long time. I did this. I've done this discipline the last two summers. I'll do it again next summer. We preach through Wesley's standard sermons in the summer. Okay. We refit them for today, but let me just tell you what they are powerful and forgotten. Yeah. Beautiful. What a great idea. I want to transition now. Just my, my final question. I asked people, uh, the name of my podcast is More to the Story, because I want to get deeper into just like the talking points that people have about the GMC or the UMC. And that's exactly what we've done. And there's also a theological side that there's more to the story than just being saved, that we have the opportunity to experience God's sanctifying grace in our life. But also, I like to ask the question, is there more to the story of you too, um, uh, uh, Bishop, like, is there something you like to do that you don't, you wouldn't normally say, like, do you like to scuba dive or something like that? Uh, what, what is, I, I, Jeff, I know you're a big Steelers fan, but beyond that, I'd love to, love to see, and, and look, you have my old quarterback, which I was glad to give him to you, Mitch Trubitsky. So, uh, but, but Bishop, is there more to the story of, uh, of you than what you normally get to say? 
Well, yeah, obviously not. You can't see. I'll stand up here. But okay. I, this is I'm wearing my shirt that celebrates the Chicago Cubs my being champions in okay. 2016. So I grew up actually in northern Illinois near Chicago. I had relatives uh, in the city and that kind of stuff. And okay. So ardent Chicago Cub fan. I, I think part of my own life, one of the things that's very important to me in my life is JoLynn and I have been blessed with two great kids, two great kids-in-law, and four absolutely fabulous fabulous grandchildren. And so part of what part of what is going on in our life right now as a couple, we just celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary is we're is we're uh, trying to spend more time with grandchildren, the youngest of whom just turned five, as I shared earlier. And the oldest is a wonderful granddaughter who who uh, started fourth grade. She's nine. So so that that's part of part of the story uh, for us. Uh, Jolyn kind of pushes on me because I'm failing retirement. I am uh, Bishop Emeritus and Residence at United, which means I work with uh, w- with the administration and I work with a DMIN program. Um, uh, we have a cohort called Living the Historic Faith that, that I find absolutely fascinating and wonderful. I, I think there is a recovery going on in the Christian movement uh, of what it means uh, to reclaim the insights of the early Christian church pre-Constantine. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's actually a work of God. I mean, that, Amen. that excites me, but, but the other part of life is, is just getting to spend more time with my wife and, and uh, chasing grandkids who, yeah. you know, candidly wear me out. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, uh, cheering for the Chicago Cubs. There you uh, go. It's, it's, my, been my a pre, it's been a pretty grim year this year. But. Oh, I know. It's not been an easy one, but I'm um on the, my, my parents were appointed to Salvation Army on the north side, just a, a mile. Oh, or yeah. Two. Okay. Yep. I'm a big, uh, yeah, but I can, I'm still living off the fumes of 2016 for sure. Just like oh, you. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> it only took a hundred years. So welcome to the party. 100, 108 to be exact, That's by the right. way, Jeff. So yeah, but who's counting, yes. you know? Jeff, how about you? Well, as you already alluded to, I'm a I'm an all things Pittsburgh sports fan, except for I'm not a not necessarily a Pitt Panther fan. My dad was a Pitt fan. My mother was a West Virginia fan. My uncle played for Bobby Bowden for WVU. So when I was growing up and just starting to pay attention to that Penn State was was it. And uh, so I've been a Penn State fan all my life. Um, You know, I'm uh, I'm happily married to Beth. Uh, We've been married for uh, for 41 years. We have three adult kids. All of them love God. They're all engaged in church. We've got three in loves that we love to death. And uh, we've got eight grandkids under 12. Wow. And uh, and uh, um, we uh, spend as much time with them as we can. Last summer, we had a we had a a a cousin's camp at our house. And uh, we had to recover from that for three weeks, but we did it. <laughs> we had cousins camp at our house. Um, I, uh, you know what, Andy, I've had I've, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of cool things in my life, and uh, but I've never really wanted to be anything other than a than a pastor of a local church that thrives. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm grateful for the privilege of doing that. And uh, and probably the thing that you don't know about me, when well, you might from social media, is that whenever I get a chance, I head to a trout stream with a fly rod. Oh, Because yeah. people ask me why I fly fish. And the reason I fly fish is, is there are no ugly places to fly fish. 
<laughs> and uh, and the other reason I fly fish is because you can't think about anything else when you're doing it or else you don't catch anything. And so it, it's a way for me to kind of disengage. So I spend yeah. usually two weeks in the Rockies and I try to make a couple trips to North Georgia a year to fish at a at a stream that I have limited access to. And, and that's enough that, that, that does that's it for great. me, but that's a, that's a lot of fun for me. So. Well, know of our prayers for you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, even my family, just uh, thankful for the work that so many of you are doing in pioneering this effort, which, you know, might go without a lot of recognition in your life. But now I believe like with this beautiful picture of multiplying Methodism, uh, this, this image that exists of this version of the Christian faith, have an opportunity to expand and grow and to be bold is exemplified for you. And there the bishop is holding it up. So thank yeah. you so much for your time. Thanks for checking this out. If those of you who are listening to this, if you could like, share a link to this, make a comment on um, Apple Podcasts, that would be a big help to me. It makes this go further. And I hope this would be a good resource for people in the church. God bless you all. Thank you. Andy, thank you so much. You've been so gracious. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. God bless you.